you, Lee. And uh, the, the extra time that we gain there um, will be good as uh, just before our closing prayer, our brother Patina Tititon is here from Thailand. And um, that's an exciting development because I was just telling him, some of you were around a couple of, uh, about a week or two ago, when we had Scott Lambert from Let's Start, Let's Start Talking, he was with us, and uh, he came in the middle of the week, and, and we, weren't, we weren't able to you know, give him the high visibility that uh, we'd hoped for, but some of our classes got to hear him and some of our leaders, and he just wanted to get to know us, and Scott is a new addition to the Let's Start Talking team, and he and I um, had heard about each other for years, and then we got to know each other at the Gulf Coast Getaway in Florida this January. Realized all the uh, connections and common friends that we had, and uh, he's, he's also more or less next door to Mission Resource Network and, and the friends that I have there. But he, he is known of uh, our campus minister, Cade Richards, for quite a few years, and uh, he knows some of our other folks up here. He's going to be, he met with the Belotes because uh, their daughter Gina uh, has an interest in what they do. Let's start talking. I'd heard about it for years. Some of you heard from uh, Craig Altrock, who was here about a, um, uh, a year ago. And I appreciated Scott's presentation because he based it on Isaiah 55, that God's word never returns to him empty. That when God sends his word out, it always comes back to him with some sort of fruit, with some sort of um, uh, benefit. And the beauty of programs like Let's Start Talking and Friends Speak, and there's, there's, there's a few others, is that they simply focus on sharing God's Word with others. And, and, and we say that a lot. We use that phrase a lot. But the way that they do this is they present an opportunity to learn English, and you learn English by studying Scripture. Now, the weight and the burden is not on me or you as the presenter to package the gospel and to make it a, 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 a neat little... Um, well, sometimes, I, I've just got to admit, sometimes I've experienced this on the other side. By I, Well, this is going to be recorded. I enjoy letting people evangelize me because I like to see how others share the gospel. And um, I, uh, now, now, now don't, it's been a while, so don't, don't go spreading that around. But um, I used to enjoy having the uh, Mormons and Jehovah Witness come to my house in Texas. But I've been in these things that I call the gospel trap where, uh, you know, they get me into this corner so that, you know, philosophically I have to agree to whatever they're saying. And, boy, that's just, that's crazy. Let's start talking just says, look, here's the word of God, and then the word of God is its own message. Patina and the uh, brothers and sisters in Thailand have been doing this for 20 years. They've, uh, they've, they've been sponsoring groups that come in and do let's start talking. This is the sort of thing that, Two or three of you could do, five or six of you could do, just whoever. Uh, there's opportunities all over the world uh, to do this, anywhere where anybody's willing to learn English. Um, but this may be our, our easiest setup here. So Petunia is probably going to invite you because he had told Scott, he said, tell them to please send people for this. But I'm going to leave that to uh, Petunia and let him greet you and, 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 and share that at the end of this lesson, and then he'll, he will dismiss us in prayer tonight. But for tonight, let's go take a look at 1 Corinthians, uh, continue our study there. And, um, oh, this is such an interesting uh, chapter. 
We went through chapter 5, and in chapter 5, there's the scandal and controversy of a brother in the church who's involved in sexual immorality. He's involved in an incestuous relationship. And, and then he's going to, in chapter 6, towards the, the last half of it at least, he's going to talk about um, sexual immorality. And of course, right in the middle of this scandalous sandwich, you've got all this, are, are lawsuits. And uh, this is a, um, well, you talk about a trifecta of just evil and scandal here. So let's pick up in 6.1 and, and listen to what he says in the first half. Uh, Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers okay we're going to pause right there this is where it's important to remember that in corinthians corinthians is not a general manual of 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 church rules or christian behavior these are specific situations that they are dealing with and paul is addressing them and he's heard it from their letter that that they sent to him and he's heard it from a delegation that came to visit him and told him about this so one of the things happening in the Corinthian group is, is that they're, they're taking matters to the, um, to the civil law courts of the time. That they're going into the legal system there in Corinth and uh, settling disputes about what he calls ordinary matters. Um, some translations will say something to the effect of uh, matters of this world, as though it means... Uh, secular matters rather than spiritual matters it's probably not what he means i i i i would argue that he's talking about just everyday stuff he's talking about um the ordinary things of life economics being and and by the way he'll talk about being defrauded and they are defrauding one another um I'm not an expert on the ancient Roman courts of law. I only know what I've read from others. But what others tend to say, and again, they take this from the writings of the, uh, the, the, the writers of the time and in and around that time, is that uh, the Roman legal system wasn't necessarily corrupt, but it was based on class, which then, of course, leads to corruption. Uh, if you'll remember in James, he'll talk about showing preferential treatment to the rich over the poor. And he'll say that when you've done that, you've shown yourself to be wicked judges. I think that what James writes in that letter is, is very instructive for what Paul is writing here. Uh, some of the, the, the writers in, uh, in the ancient world, uh, 
their critique of the Roman system was that judges could be bribed, and uh, they had lawyers, and, and, and guess what? Back in the ancient world, they didn't have a high regard for lawyers. I mean, it just, you know, uh, you know, some things are universal or something. I, I don't know, but uh, I don't know why that is. But they would, have, they, they would, they would go beyond just lawyers. They, they, would, um, they would have what they would call the uh, public speakers or rhetors. Uh, and, and you could get someone who was a rhetor with their rhetoric to plead a case. And sometimes it was the way that that was put together that was just as convincing as the matters of fact and law that were presented. <clears throat> now you remember that Paul it starts out this letter calling them out for their confidence in, in uh, philosophy and their confidence in rhetoric. And they blame Paul for not having a strong rhetorical presence. And Paul says, well, I, I don't have to because it's the message that he brings, the gospel. That, uh, that's where he put his hope and his confidence. Um, Paul has been chastising them in these chapters, all the way up to chapter 6, for their confidence in a... Um, a philosophy that does not partake of the gospel. And I don't want to say that philosophy is all bad because there is a Christian philosophy. But they believe in a, uh, a sophos or a wisdom of the age, which Paul differentiates from the wisdom of God. He talks about the wisdom of the world, and then he says that the, uh, uh, the wisdom of the world is foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. And he says that the foolishness of God is even greater than the greatest wisdom in the world. You'll, you could go back and look at chapter 1 and you can see him make that argument. This continues that thought. In other words, what I'm saying to you is don't just you know, discard everything that we learned in chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Carry it with you and you'll see how he's continuing this uh, message. And, and now he's bringing it to a practical level. He says that stuff's not just good things to say or things to point out in a lesson, it matters in the ordinary, everyday things of life. It makes a difference. That these are not just ideas to say over here and then over here on the other hand, you know, well, you know, this is daily life. Um, Paul will not allow for any sort of duality, any sort of division that allows the church to think that what we believe and teach over here in the spiritual realm is one thing, and what we live and practice over here in the earthly realm, well, that's not as important. Not at all. In fact, where Paul's heading in chapter 15 is he's saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that God cares about the spiritual and the physical all together, and his plan ultimately is to redeem it all. That God's not just going to wad up the material world and throw it away. That he's going to redeem it. And that Christ is not risen as a ghostly figure, but he's risen in the flesh. Now, I've told you that every one of these specific incidents that are in the, the text, Paul will show them the way they ought to behave and the way they ought to respond to it by going straight to the gospel. He doesn't come up with his own set of rules that says, well, I'm going to make a judgment here, and my judgment is this. 
He's going to inform them of that from the gospel. I'll show you how that happens. But um, when you get through these first few verses, there's probably some stuff there that will raise some eyebrows. Um, The saints will judge the world? We're going to judge angels? Where's that coming from? What's that all about? Um, I'm going to give you some uh, Old Testament and a few references outside of, uh, well, Old Testament, New Testament, and then some from some books that are outside Scripture, but I think they inform this. In uh, Daniel 7, and, and I, you remember, Paul's, Paul's reading Scripture. He's a student of Scripture. He knows Scripture. That, that for him, is what we call the Old Testament. Um, he would also be very familiar with their philosophy, and he can, uh, he can reference that if he needs to. But in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision. Daniel says, my spirit, this is uh, Daniel 7, starting in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all of this, and so he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 18 is of note here. The holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn which came up and to make room for which three of them fell out, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that seemed greater than all the others. And by the way, these visions that, that Daniel has seen of these beasts, these are the world powers and the world rulers of, of both Daniel's age and then an age to come. And, and so this is all uh, image, imagery and symbolic language for these, uh, these powerful rulers. And, and again, these, these kings who think that they're above everyone else. Uh, and and they're, they're simply described as arrogant. And, and, and they're not divine. They're not gods. They're monsters. They're beasts. They're abominations. Um, he said, um, as I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones, those are the saints, and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. And then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. Here's this concept of the holy ones being empowered by God to overcome uh, these beasts and to even stand in judgment on them. And, and part of that judgment comes from the fact that they are the holy ones. Okay, go back with me to 1 Corinthians 1 1, uh, or I'm sorry, 1 2. The Corinthians are addressed as the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's the holy ones, sanctified. Daniel has in mind the nation of Israel. Paul's using the language of Israel, and he's updating it for the church. The holy ones. There's something about being sanctified. Paul wants them to have this identity. Again, that's nothing to make them proud and arrogant, 
But that's something to make them understand that they've been given a new identity apart from the world. Now, if you went into a Roman court and you were dragging people in there, you would be depending on your identity and your status and who you were in society for your case. And more often than not, the wealthy and the powerful who were of the same classes as the judges and the people who ran the courts would have their way over the poor. It, it, it's not always a very just system. And if this rings true to anything that we hear or experience today, well, so be it. Paul is not giving a general rule that says, hey, stay out of court. You're not supposed to go to court. Again, we can legalistically get hung up on this stuff. His concern is that they have failed in their identity as the holy ones. And it's, it's because instead of them settling their differences as a community of sanctified holy ones, they go to the people who are outside that community. And they let them stand in judgment on them. He, get this, he's saying their standard of righteousness ought to be better than that of the world. That's what it means to be a holy one. Now to understand some of this and what's going on in Daniel, let's understand what God's intent was for Israel. And I'm going to condense this, and we can, we can talk about this sometime, but this is all the prophets and a lot of the teaching that comes and starts with Abraham and, and Moses and uh, just kind of condensed into a nutshell, and it's like this. God's already tried to wash the experiment called this world out with Noah and the flood, and guess what? It didn't work. It didn't deal with the problem of sin. And you can say, well, wait a second. How can God do something that didn't work? Well, the point is, is that didn't solve the problem. And that story is meant to show us that perfection and righteousness doesn't come about in that way. Instead, what God does is he draws a group out to demonstrate to them, to the rest of the world, what it means to live by the covenants that God always had in mind. God's going back to that garden relationship, that righteousness, where He and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel all live in this community without sin, without hatred, animosity, or shame. And He's trying to embody that in a people. It gets close. It's not perfect. But at least they have a witness. God takes them, and, and, and for them, their, their origin really begins not at creation or even with Abraham, but it begins with the Exodus. That when God takes them out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to a land where they will be a light to all the other nations, that's Israel's calling, to be a redemptive witness to the world. To be this other community that shows the rest of the world well this is what it's like to live now bad things happen because they don't live up to that calling that ultimately gets expressed in jesus that when god sends his son to embody the new humanity 
We see in Jesus what it means to live out that sort of covenant. I mean, imagine a whole community of people that treated one another as Jesus did. We can imagine that because we understand how Jesus treats those that he meets in this world, as he comes to this world, as as God became flesh and met us. And so the church is supposed to be a group of sanctified ones who are all behaving as Jesus. Jesus fulfills the hope of Israel, what Israel's intent was supposed to be. And that's where Paul gets this idea and this language of the holy ones, the sanctified ones. It runs throughout Scripture. I'll give you a few others then. Oh, by the way, th- that idea then means that these saints and these holy ones are going to participate in God's judgment of the world. Now, God's judgment of the world is not God. Um, we tend to think of, of God's judgment as the lifeguard who, uh, you know, people are horsing around, and here he goes. He shows up, blows the whistle, and says, that's it. Everybody out of the pool. No fun for anyone. This is why we can't have nice things. God's judgment of the world is a restorative judgment. It's meant to to establish things because there's a problem with evil and corruption in the world and it's got to be taken away. It's got to be dealt with. But God is at the same time is patient and merciful and he's waiting. So what if these redemptive people, this redemptive community is participating in that effort of judgment and justification that God is enacting? See, we've we've got a bigger role in this than we realize. And I'm going to confess to you, I'm still at nearly, you know, 50 years on this world and and some, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 trying to figure all this out and live it out. I'm still getting my head wrapped around this. I'm still trying to get my life wrapped around this. But that's why we have community. That's why we have one another, because we help one another. But please, let's be more than just the uh, happy Christian waiting room until the end of time, you know, where we all kind of huddle up and stay out of trouble. And it's like, you know world tough out there yeah you know and okay there's there's more christianity wasn't just made for the golden streets of heaven it was made for the concrete streets of this world and that's what paul's saying here so imagine it now the scenario where these people who are supposed to be the saints the holy ones the sanctified ones and they can't even settle their own problems They have to go to people who operate by a worldly wisdom, who participate in practices of unrighteousness. They have to go to those people, and they submit themselves to those people. Paul is saying it should be the other way around. They should be coming to you the way the nations came to David, the way the nations came to Solomon, and they were impressed by his wisdom in judging between people. They were impressed that Solomon had this righteousness and this wisdom given by God that he could settle disputes. And he says, and you claim to be wise men in Corinth, and you can't even settle boundary disputes or you know, fraud cases. Instead, you go to these corrupt judges who are pagans. And there's no distinction in Corinth between spiritual and secular. Okay, not the way we do it. We tend to view our courts of law as a sort of outside religion. I know we swear on Bibles and all that, but there's kind of a civic religion. You know, I don't even think they do that anymore. I don't know. I don't want to find out. I don't want to go through all. But, but he's, they would have uh, all sorts of honoring of of pagan powers and pagan gods and the powers of this and the powers of that paul says don't participate in that they ought to be coming to you but he says more than that 
there ought to be someone wise enough among you to settle your disputes. But remember how fractured they are. Um, let me give you a few other uh, verses uh, about this. Revelation 3, 21 and 22 the promise of Jesus is, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, if we are Christians, which means that we're little Christs, you know, we're, we're followers of Christ, then in, in imitating him also, there's going to be some idea that we're going to participate in his rule. Um, that doesn't mean that you and I are royalty in the same way that he is but it does mean that we we are welcome in the throne room of god we are part of the royal court uh let it uh, anyway uh matthew 19 verse 28 peter says to jesus look we we've left everything to and followed you what then will we have and jesus said truly i tell you at the renewal of all things when the son of man is seated on the throne of his glory you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Well, that's just the 12 apostles, right? Well, if it is, then why does Matthew want to record this in his gospel? They're, they're, again, they're participating in this idea that God has this redemptive, sanctifying force, not just for our good or, or something that we get as a payoff, but as part of the redemptive work that God's doing in the world. Okay, I told you I wasn't going to stick with the Bible. Sometime, this is, the, this is a good advanced class, check out what's called the Wisdom of Solomon. I don't mean Ecclesiastes. There's a book written, it's either 1st century B.C. or 1st century A.D. It's one or the other, somewhere in there, that time period. Probably about the same time the Bible's being written. It's very Jewish. It's called the Wisdom of Solomon. What's interesting about the Wisdom of Solomon is it gives us insight into what's being written by Paul and by others and by the gospel writers. Because this is the world that they participate in. It's much, it's much better to understand that thought world than to try to take our 20th and 21st century ideas and our enlightenment views of modern science and kind of squeeze the Bible into it and say, Paul must be talking about, uh, you know, atomic science here. No. He's not talking about American legal system. He has in mind this idea of what's going to happen at the end of all things. Where is he getting this idea? Well, you read in Wisdom of Solomon. Let me find the, uh, the best here. Um, he's talking, uh, whoever's writing Wisdom of Solomon, it's not Solomon, uh, says, uh, uh, he's talking about all those pagan folks. He says, for though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full uh, no, I'm sorry, these are the righteous ones. These are the saints. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be a disaster, and they're going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good, because God tested them and found them worthy of himself. 
Like gold in the furnace, he tried them. And like a sacrificial burnt offering, he accepted them. In the time of their visitation, they will shine forth and will run like sparks through the stubble. They will govern nations and rule over peoples, and the Lord will reign over them forever. That sounds like Hebrews. Where he talks about those great heroes of faith and the, you know, and the world wasn't worthy of them. Same thought world. But whereas wisdom of Solomon doesn't connect it to Christ, Paul and, the, and, and, and Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, they will connect it to Christ. Now notice he's, he's telling them that they ought to be wise enough to judge. He said it would be better if they would suffer wrong and to be defrauded than to do wrong. If you want to make some notes in your Bibles, I know some of you are doing, take a look at 6.1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Now, if you circle that word unrighteous, and somehow connect it to the, ver- to the word in verse 8 that's translated, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The word for unrighteous and the word for wronging your brother in Greek, they're, they're forms of the same word. That the unrighteous are those, you know, and again, in English you can't quite get it. You know, okay, these people over here, they're the unrighteous. Well, what do you do when you defraud your brother? Well, you wrong him. But I wish that we had some way to communicate it in Greek. It's like these people are the unrighteous. And when you defraud your brother, you unrighteous him. Because that's, that's how it sounds in Greek. Or they are the wrong and you wrong your brother. Now that works in English. But that would be the close association. And he's saying, you're acting just like those unrighteous people. Now, he's talked about their specific matter with lawsuits, but he's heard about some other problems, too. So as we continue on in 6.9, he says, Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's our list of bad things. But look what he says next. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's talking about their baptism. And he says at their baptism, something very important happens. And by the way, we really like that, you know, because our, our, our baptismal formula is based a lot on Acts chapter 2. And so um, uh, I have a perspective from years on the other side of the baptistry, okay? And, and I'm telling you, there are... Um, it's sort of like, I imagine that I could never watch a sporting event the same way if I was an umpire or a ref. You know, because if you are, you're always looking at things, you're, oh, no, that's, that's a bad call, no, you can't do that. You, know, you're, you, you lose the ability to watch it as a, as a spectator. Um, so what often happens at baptisms for the people behind the scenes, and, and I, this was especially true when I was young, is that you'd have to, you know, there's kind of this, this format for calling a yellow flag on a baptism as to whether or not it made it. 
Uh, I remember I baptized this one poor fellow, and I think an element of his elbow was sticking out, you know, and they're like, oh, I don't know if that counts, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, uh, do we drag him back in there and everything? Finally, some wise man said, he'll survive in heaven without an elbow, and, uh, you know, you know, and no one was being disrespectful to the form of baptism or anything like that, but the words that you say, now that's the one that really gets me. You know, baptism makes sense that it's immersion, and we don't have time to discuss that. But it does; it makes a lot of sense. But those words, and people will ask me, "Did I say the right words?" Because okay, baptism doesn't depend on the words you say. Baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, however that's communicated. It looks like here that in Corinth, the way they did it sounds a little different than what we're used to. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if you want to say baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and so that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's fine. But here, he's recalling maybe what they heard when they were baptized, which was that they were being baptized into the name. And I do think there's something important about that because that's the name that saves. And that the Spirit of God is present at there. Now, he uses two verbs to talk about what happened to them. Which, by the way, people often ask, well, what happens when I'm baptized? What actually happens to me? This is a good verse to go to. We're washed. And we are sanctified. We're made holy. We're made into the holy ones. And we are justified. We're made right before God. Paul seems to think that, I mean, this is a big move. This isn't, well, you know, you're basically good people and you had some sinful moments, but you acknowledge that you need Jesus Christ to save you because you can't get to heaven on your own. So go ahead and be baptized and then go on about your life. Paul is saying, look, some of you, were drunkards, swindlers, engaged in, in homosexual practices. You were, engaged, you, know, you, were, you were involved in uh, idolatry, uh, thieves, greedy drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That, that, that's not the kingdom of heaven. That's the unrighteous ones. You were there. But now you're washed. You're sanctified and justified. He's calling that in to remind them that that transformation is so important that it changes who they are. We said this morning in the sermon about Memorial Day that the reason why we have memorials is not to feel some measure of guilt about those who passed on or not because we... um, it's not because we uh, uh, have to do this or it's a duty or it's a responsibility, but that we believe that if we remember significant events and if we remember that which is important and contains the values that we think are important, that by remembering that, we become better people. Paul is saying that and more in this. He's calling them to remember their baptism But he also wants them to know that at that moment, there was an action of God that truly changed their status. And it didn't just change them spiritually or in some register in heaven. It changes the way that they live. Now, we'll we'll draw a line right there and pick up because 
I will tell you as you read ahead, when you get to the last half of chapter 6, Paul's having a conversation with himself, and he's playing their part. And that's why in some English translations it has quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. Ah, but not all things are helpful. So this is Paul answering. Now, I want to give you something just to just tip you off to something. I think for years I've been reading verse, um, I can't see my numbers, uh, 13, wrong. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's their quotation. But what if their quotation also includes, and God will destroy both one and the other? That that's not Paul's statement. That's him parroting what they say. That makes more sense. Uh, Some of the commentators I read go with that. By the way, there's no quotation marks in Greek. We have to guess where to put the quotation marks. But that starts to make sense. Because they would be saying, well, you know, this body, this flesh, this, this, this meat vehicle that our spirits live in, it's corrupt anyway, so it doesn't matter what we do with it. I mean, we can eat whatever we want. We can be gluttons. We can be sexually immoral. Eh, that's just the pleasures of the flesh. What matters is our spirit and our heart and our mind and our philosophy. And Paul may be quoting their idea well, you know, that God's going to destroy all this matter, so it doesn't matter. But instead, it doesn't fit that Paul would believe that. That Paul instead believes that what we do with our bodies is holy. And that it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you think about that, and then in a couple of weeks we'll talk about it. But right now, we're going to sing this song. And uh, if anyone needs to uh, partake of communion, that's in room 100. And then after that, is going to come... He'll dismiss us in prayer and and share whatever other good word he's got for just a few minutes. Okay, let's stand and let's sing.